Well, if you would, remain standing and open your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians. We're going to be continuing through the book of 2 Corinthians. Praise the Lord. What a glorious, glorious time of worship. Glorious time of worship that was. That's for the sound guys. That's, I figure I better assert myself now, early, give you guys an opportunity to tame me a little bit. <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 11 today. This is what the word of the Lord says. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stone came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more... That which remains is in glory. Let's pray one more time. Father, Lord, truly you are majestic and we do sing of your majesty. We have nothing to bring you. We come completely empty-handed. We are sinful men and women that have nothing to contribute, nothing to add to you. If anything, Lord, you have overcome our demerit, Lord, by the merits of Christ. And we're so grateful for the the super abundant grace that has come to us through the ministry of the new covenant, through the better mediator that is Jesus over Moses. And so, Father, we're grateful to be standing in the the freedom and the liberty of these new covenant blessings that we now enjoy. We pray your blessing over our time. I pray that you would help us to see not just the theology of the new covenant, but how that theology has so many practical implications for our everyday lives. Father, I pray you bless us with understanding. Give us illumination, Lord. Give me a mouth to speak, Father. Guard my mouth from error. Only use me as an instrument to impart the grace that is needed for the edification of the listeners. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this is really the third sermon now, third part of what I've been looking at in terms of the supremacy of the new covenant. We're going to be talking today about what I've entitled the abiding glory of the new covenant. The abiding glory of the new covenant. That, after all, is the thrust of Paul's language here. That there is a covenant that has come, and it is supreme, and it is superior, and it is superlative in every respect to the old covenant. And one of the ways that we know that is because of its abiding, continuous, permanent uh, administration in the lives of God's people I want to look at three different aspects of this new covenant and its abiding glory and how that it makes it more glorious than the old covenant. Uh, Let me remind you, as Paul has already talked about in verse 3 of this chapter, that all all of the issues surrounding the new covenant have 
great implications for every one of us, practical implications for every one of us, because it always is going to, or it, it, everything is going towards the direction of transformation. That is to say that the new covenant is so much vastly and wildly superior to the old because of the change that it is able to affect in the recipient of the covenant. We see that, is, we see that very clearly in verse 3 where he says, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ cared for by us, written not with ink, but written with the spirit of the living God, or but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. The new covenant has affected the, the inner man. It has affected the heart of man. So much so, therefore, that the Apostle Paul will go on to say that we are being transformed. Verse 18, we are beholding with an unveiled face the very glory of the Lord, and we are being transformed into the same glory from glory to glory, just as from the Spirit of the Lord. So that is where all of this is going. But before we get to the outworking of the covenant, let us look one more time at Another argument, there are several arguments that Paul's going to make here about the supremacy of the new covenant over the old. Now, the very first one I want to point out to you is in verses 7 and 8, where he talks about the Spirit being more glorious than the face of Moses. You know that because he's contrasting, remember, two ministries. Verse 7 introduces what he calls the ministry of death, which will be a parallel with the ministry of condemnation, that which is written on stone. In other words, the Mosaic covenant, the, the old economy, the old covenant, and it's, he's contrasting that with the ministry of the Spirit, and that represents the new ministry. That's the ministry that Paul is preaching. That is the ministry that Paul is imparting to the Corinthians, and you remember it has everything to do with ministry. This word here, um, uh, this word uh, diakonea, the word ministry. It's where we get the word deacon. It literally speaks of serving. So what is the ministry that Paul is serving up? He is serving up a ministry not of Moses, but of the Spirit. Not of the letter of the law, but of the Spirit of the living God. That is the contrast that he's talking about here. And the contrast will go on and on and on, but it is all for the purpose of showing the issue of glory has now shifted away from the old covenant, away from the face of Moses, away from the mountain, Sinai, and to the face of Christ, to the Spirit of the living God, the Shekinah glory that the people of God had once seen reflecting and radiating off of the face of Moses, the mediator of that covenant, is now radiating somewhere else with a superlative splendor, a superabundant glory. Just amazing. As I tracked the language that the Apostle Paul uses here, he really goes out of his way to sort of stress the fact that he is dealing with a covenant that is wildly more glorious than the old. Now, the old was glorious indeed. That's what he says. He says it was glory. It did have glory, that which was engraved on stones, so much so that it was an intense glory. It was almost an unbearable glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face. Moses would go up to the mountain and he would be 
He would be there in the presence of God where the Shekinah glory of God would literally rub off on Moses so that Moses would have to put a veil over his face because of the splendor that would be shining from the face of Moses. It was an epiphanic phenomenon, something that is epiphanic inspires fear, something that is epiphanic inspires awe. And what Moses or what Paul is saying here is that awesome splendor that came off of the face of Moses doesn't compare to the splendor and the glory that we now have in the new covenant. The old splendor, notice what he says, is fading away. It is diminishing splendor. It is the type of splendor that is fading as it was, he says. In other words, that type of splendor had to be renewed. Moses would have to go back up to the mountain to get the glory again and then come down. And the minute he came down from the mountain, little by little, the, the, the splendor that emanated from his face would begin once again to wear off. But everything that Paul wants to belabor here is that the splendor and the glory of this covenant is permanent. It is eternal. It is enduring. And it has no mitigation. It does not wear off. It remains. It abides. That's what he's talking about. The Apostle Paul is really focused on this word glory to show that the new has more glory than the old. And he brings all these different comparisons. I listed about 10 of them. It's just going all the way back to, uh, to verse 3. But he begins by contrasting the old and the new. Okay? So this is where a visual aid might help. My left hand is the old. My right hand is the new. Under the old, he speaks of ink. In the new, he speaks of the spirit. In the old, he speaks about tablets of stone, tablets of human hearts, the old covenant, the new covenant. Well, he'll call that the new, the old covenant in verse 14. He talks about letters, spirit, letter kills, spirit, the spirit gives life, the ministry of death, the ministry of the spirit. And so you understand this is the way it goes. This is the contrast that he's trying to make. So Paul is sort of laboring to show and to establish the fact that just as the ministry of death had its own glory, so too, he says, so too will the ministry of the Spirit. How will it fail, he says, to be even more with glory? And that's what I mean, the language. He's being very specific and very intentional there by adding this language of more, the word Milan. It's a comparative adverb. He says it's got more glory. And then he'll go on to say it cannot fail. And the word he uses is it cannot be that it will fail. It cannot be. It cannot be so that God would fail to accompany the new covenant with even more glory than the old covenant had. This is not the glory of Moses coming down from a mountain. Brothers and sisters, this is the glory of God writing His, heart, His law directly in your heart with the Spirit of the living God. That is why it is wildly more glorious why it is wildly more glorious. The old covenant is described here as a covenant of death because of what it produces. It's a covenant of death, not life. In the old covenant, as the author of Hebrews belabors to point out, it could make nothing perfect. Nothing. 
It could not make the, per- the worshiper perfect. It didn't perfect the sacrifices. It didn't perfect the offerings. It did not make a single thing perfect. But the new covenant, the new covenant perfects us because of what it produces. Look, you could see this more clearly in the second point that righteousness is more glorious than condemnation. That's his next point. Look at verse 9. He says, For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound with glory. And there is another word that he's stressing, the word abound. As I looked over this in my NAS, and if you have an NASB or an ESV, you'll find that the word glory is put together at the very end with the word glory, uh, the, the word abound is put together with the word glory at the very end, but not so in the original. When Paul originally wrote that, he writes the word abundant at the very beginning of the sentence, and he puts the word glory at the very end, sort of sandwiching everything in between, so that what he's literally saying is abundantly, much more does the ministry of righteousness with glory. That's what he's saying. He's stressing, he wants to draw your attention to the word abundant, superlative, superlative glory. And it's so amazing what he's saying here is that the old ministry, the ministry of death, is a ministry, he says, of condemnation. That's what it produced. It produced condemnation, while the new produces righteousness. This is all that we're going to look at. This is really important to Paul. He wants to magnify that what is more glorious, brothers and sisters, is not condemnation. What is more glorious is righteousness. And to focus so much on the old covenant was to focus on condemnation instead of righteousness. That cannot be, therefore, and it can't fail, therefore, to be more glorious since we're talking about righteousness versus condemnation. Who wants to be condemned? Nobody. Amazing relevance the new covenant has for us. Uh, several of us went uh, yesterday to go look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were down here at the, um, the seminary, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and they had the actual fragments of the scroll. Not the copies, the actual fragments. We actually got to lay our eyes on a, a more than 2,000-year-old piece of, of, of parchment, a scroll and of papyrus upon which the Word of God was written And there it is in all of its ancient glory. They got to dim the lights. It can't be in the wrong lighting. You got to put it in a glass case because it's so old. You got to keep the temperature right or it'll start disintegrating. And I just thought, you know, as old as those parchments are, as old as those manuscripts are, what is written upon them has a timeless value to it. It is absolutely, what is written on those pages is absolutely timeless for the people of God. The manuscripts may get old, but the truths that are on the manuscripts are relevant for your life right now. In the 21st century, I was going to try to say the date, but I don't even know what day it is, so I don't want to embarrass myself. I probably just did. But you know what I mean. These are eternal truths, gnomic truths, timeless truths truths. And that's what Paul's point is here. He's arguing once again from an argument of lesser to greater glory. This is what they call a a fortiori argument or what the Hebrews would call arguing from something that had weight to something that has greater weight, right? 
Nobody denies that there is weight to the old covenant. Nobody denies that, again, to belabor the point, that it is a weighty matter for the, the mediator of the covenant, Moses, to come down the mountain with the glory of God shining on his face. But it is a much more weightier, much greater thing for God himself to write his law in your heart, to internalize the law of God. Amazing. At this point, John and Paul are in perfect agreement. What glory are we talking about? We are talking about the glory of God himself, the God-man, the theanthropic man, the God of very gods. John says in John 1.16, For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth was realized through Jesus Christ. And then he'll go on to say in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time except the only begotten God who is at the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. He has exegeted Him. Not even Moses saw God face to face in the most absolute way or in the most absolute meaning of that word. But Jesus did. Jesus has always been in perfect eternal communion with the Trinity The word was with God. The word there meaning they were in a transitive relationship. In other words, it was there was there was action, there was there was direction, there was motion, there was some sort of relational relationship between Father and Son. That's why it is so much more glorious, because we have such a much more glorious mediator to a much more glorious covenant accompanied by much more glorious promises. That's what the author of Hebrews declares. Now, without the life-giving Spirit of God regenerating the heart, we know what the law does. The law can only kill. It can only condemn. But through the gospel, we have the righteousness of God on display at work through the Spirit providing the very righteousness that we need. Matter of fact, The Apostle Paul says this very thing in Romans chapter 3, that this righteousness was revealed apart from the law. It was revealed in the gospel. That's what he says. Look at uh, uh, Romans 3.21. He says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, it is not in contradiction to the law or the prophets, but in perfect keeping with the law of the prophets, even predicting the gospel in the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those that believe. In other words, redemption has become a reality through Christ, not the law. The law could only condemn the unregenerate heart. The law lacked the spirit. The law had no impetus with which to give you the ability to do what the law demanded. And everything that the law demanded, the gospel provided. That is a glorious truth, brothers and sisters. That's why we're talking about a a degree of glory that says what has come now is wildly more glorious than what came before. The law only provides the knowledge of sin. Matter of fact, Paul says in Romans 5.20, the law provides an occasion through which sin will actually increase. The law will make sin multiply. It will increase. Why? 
Because as he goes on to say in Romans chapter 7, verses 8 through 11, he says, look, sin takes advantage of the law. Sin fuels the law so that what it produces is death. That's what it produces. The law, apart from the Spirit of God, will always and only produce death. This is just further evidence, therefore, that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The law is designed to show man his sinfulness. It's designed to show man that apart from the Spirit of God, we are corrupt through and through. You remember what the children of Israel said after Moses had given them the law. They said, all of these things we will do. And not even for a moment were they able to keep that law. For it was not but a day that they began breaking that law that they had taken an oath to keep. What was missing? What was missing was the Spirit. What was missing was what the prophets call circumcision of the heart. In other words, they didn't have perfect obedience because they were not perfect. But the law demands perfection, absolute perfection. What an unbearable burden, isn't it? To have a standard weighing over you that demands absolute perfection of you. And then that you, being totally imperfect and totally incapable, cannot measure up to that standard by any means. That's why we need, brothers and sisters, a righteousness that is not our own. We need a righteousness that is alien to us, foreign to us, a righteousness that you have never known of yourself, a righteousness that comes completely apart from what you're able to do. It is a righteousness that the theologians call extranos, which means Latin for outside of us. It is foreign. It is an alien righteousness. Philippians chapter 3 verse 9 points to this alien righteousness and where it is found. And it is not found in the law or the works of the law. Listen to what Paul says to the Philippians. Philippians 3 9. He says, may I be found in him, Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Faith is such an amazing thing, isn't it? It is the gift that God has given. It is the invisible hand that He has given to us so that we might receive His own grace. It is on the basis of faith, as Romans 4.16 tells us, in order that it might be in accordance with grace. See, if you receive the righteousness of God in any other way, it would not be according to grace. It would be according to something that you're able to do, something you're able to merit, some sort of good in you. The ministry of the Spirit, therefore, is more glorious because it has the power to justify. The law had the power to kill, the power to condemn, the power to bring you to death, but it did not have the power to justify. Therefore, Paul's ministry is clear. He is not calling them back to the Torah. He is not calling them back to observe the law of Moses. Paul was preaching the new covenant realities of Christ, who was crucified and risen again, as the Scriptures say, for our justification. It is His work that we need. It is His law-keeping that we need. It is His perfect obedience that we need. Because apart from His perfect obedience, brothers and sisters, we will never obey enough. 
It reminds me of a lady that I met at a convalescent home years ago. Every time I was, I was trying to encourage her to read her Bible, to, to pray, to seek the Lord, she kept telling me, well, I do, but I don't do as much as I should. Oh, do you pray? Yes, I pray, but I don't pray as much as I should. Or do you read your Bible? Yes, I do, but I don't read my Bible as much as I should. You know, I said, well, you know, it doesn't matter if you think you've done enough. What God requires is a obedience that you and I can't do anyway. Christ has done it all. It's his righteousness. He did enough so that when you fail, you don't look at your failure, your failure to measure up. You look at the merits of Christ, what Christ did, how that Christ obeyed perfectly in his life, in his death. And God rose him again, vindicating, vindicating him, accepting his sacrifice, accepting his offering, accepting his perfect obedience so that it resulted in our justification by faith. Therefore, to call people back to Moses, which is probably what the opponents of Corinthians were doing. They were trying to use the Mosaic law in such a way as to bring the people back under bondage to rules and regulation and observance of days and feasts and all of these sorts of things. But this is an impossible anachronism. In other words, you're going backwards in redemptive history. Something greater has come. Something that everything in redemptive history anticipated is here. It's amazing. It's Christ, and we'll go back to that. But to go back to Moses means you're going back to the shadows. You're going back to the anticipation. You're going back ultimately, as Hebrew says, to death, to condemnation. The glory of the old covenant was that in every way it brought an anticipation of Christ who according to Romans 10.4 was the end of the law. The word end there means the goal, the telos of the law. The whole purpose of the law was for Christ to come and to fulfill the law. It was all speaking about Him. Isn't that what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24? These things speak about me. That's what he told the Jews in John 5. Moses testifies about me. He wrote about me. Charles Hodge says, The gospel is more glorious than the law. How can it be that the gospel be not more glorious than the law, he says. And he's right. This is what Paul's referring to with all these comparisons. But let me make one last comparison. And that is the perpetuity of the new covenant versus the old I could have used a word like permanent, right? But I like fancy words like perpetuity. Makes you have to write it down and go get a dictionary and look it up. It's my kind of ability to give you a little homework. The perpetuity of the new covenant. In other words, the ongoing nature of the new covenant doesn't end. Never ends. And we're not waiting for anything else. That's it. The last stroke of redemptive history has come. And it has come in Christ. Look at verses 10 and 11 once more with me. He says, For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For that which fades away was with glory. Much more that which remains is in glory. Is in glory. In other words, Paul makes one last argument, again, from lesser 
to greater degrees of glory. And it is this time that the old is fading away. It is transient. It is, perm- it is temporary. It was just transitional. But the new is permanent. It abides. The word there, remains, means literally the abiding thing. The thing that is abiding in glory. That's what it is. So he argues in two ways here. And, and in essence, he, he takes the old now and renders it gloryless. Look at what he says. He does it. This is emphatic. In this case, it has no glory. He deglorifies the old covenant because of the surpassing glory of the new. Like I told you last time, it's like the sun outshining the moon. Yes, the moon is glorious. Yes, it has the ability to reflect great light. But when the sun rises, you don't see the glory of the moon anymore. Right? Because this, the glory of the sun is so glorious. You, can't, you can look at the moon. You can't look at the sun without being blinded by its glory. That is the glory of the new covenant. It is truly magnificent, blinding, blistering glory. Because it all, as he will show us in verse 18, it is all terminated in the face of Jesus Christ, who is himself God with us. So, he argues in these two ways. The new covenant surpasses the old in glory. And the new covenant outlasts the old in glory. The Jews had a long history, therefore, of honoring the ministry of Moses. They revered Moses. Jesus tells them in John 5, you trust in him, actually. You're putting your hope in Moses, even though he wrote about me. You see, they didn't get what a lot of people in the Gospels didn't get, and that is that at the advent of Christ, when he came, something greater, someone greater than Moses was here. Moses wrote about him. Something greater than Solomon was here. Something greater than the temple was here. The true Passover was here. A new exodus was here. Better blood than that of bulls and goats was here. The true Sabbath was here. The true manna was here. The true tabernacle was here. And far greater glory than anyone ever encountered at the mountain with Moses was now here in the presence of Jesus Christ who had chosen to tabernacle with us. See, the whole Bible is Christocentric. took me a long time to figure that out. You know, I got saved. I started studying prophecy. And I thought, the Bible is about prophecy. The Bible is about the nation of Israel. The Bible is about the Temple Mount. (laughs) The Bible is about Calvinism. The Bible is about the sovereignty of God. The Bible is about... No, my friends... I, I challenge you to look for a hermeneutic presented by Scripture other than what the Scriptures present when the Scripture says that Jesus told the disciples everything in the entire Bible concerning himself. Why didn't they understand these things? They had misinterpreted the redemptive acts of God. Why and how? Because they had not taken the key, the hermeneutical key to unlock all of the Bible, Jesus Christ, and unlocked the mysteries of the Word of God. It is all about Him. What does Hebrews say? The volume of the book 
is written of me. You can't say that about almost anything else in the Bible. The volume of the book is written of him. Good news for you and I, that means that this new covenant wildly surpasses the old. And maybe we can illustrate this. Look at Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, if you know what chapter 17 is, it's the passage on the transfiguration in Matthew. And you get a living illustration of the supremacy of Jesus Christ over the old covenant right here. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. He would often take Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. Boy, wouldn't you want to be in that number? And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, taking with, uh, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Quite an insight there, Peter, right? Yes, it is very good for you to be here, of course. He says, if you wish, I will make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. After all, you are all very important godly men, aren't you? And then he goes on to say, while he was still speaking, you see, God had to interrupt him. <laughs> You're on the wrong track. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Aren't we to listen to Moses? Aren't we to listen to the prophets? See, what God was indicating there is that something, that something far greater than Moses and the prophets has come. The prophet has come. Listen to him. If you want to know where you can find the ultimate revelation of God, it is not with one individual prophet or mediator or king or priest or anything. It is in the Son with whom he is well pleased. When the disciples heard this, they fell down on their face on the ground and they were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. What an emphatic statement. Jesus stands alone, apart. He is unique. He is preeminent. Colossians 1.15 He cannot be put on the pedestal alongside of anyone else. It doesn't matter if it's Moses. It doesn't matter if it's Elijah. It doesn't matter if it's anyone from the Old Covenant or the New Covenant. He does not stand with Paul. He does not stand with Peter. Jesus is in a class all of his own. Amazing how he belabors this. Paul brings one final explanation, therefore, and that is the new covenant outlasts the old in this glory. It is permanent. That was temporary. While the old was always designed to be temporary, it was always designed to be temporary. It was never designed to be permanent. It was always designed that the sacrifices would cease. It was always designed that the temple would be done away with. It was always designed that the tabernacle would be exactly what it was designed to be temporary, 
a temporary dwelling place. It wasn't permanent. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says about this. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 15 through 17. He says, and this is clear still, if another priest arises, that is Christ, according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has, who has become such not on the basis of a law or a physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In other words, Melchizedek was in an analogous relationship to Jesus. Just like it is said of Melchizedek that he was a perpetual priest, much more, to a much greater degree, Christ himself is the greatest of all priests because his priesthood never ends. Because Jesus' life is indestructible and eternal, so is his priesthood and so is his covenant. The new covenant, unlike the old, is not waiting for anything else to supersede it. Charles Hodge, one more time. A new ground of superiority. The old dispensation in its ministry were temporary, The new is permanent. There is nothing to intervene. No new revelation, no new economy between the gospel and its ministry and the final consummation. Whoever are to be converted, whatever nations are to be brought in, it must be by the preaching of the gospel which remains or it is to continue according to Christ's promises until the very end of the world. That's right. We are not waiting for any new phase of redemption. It is here in Christ, in His covenant. The reason why this will last until the very end is because in Christ, everything that was imperfect with the old, everything, as Hebrews 8, 7 says, that was filled with fault has been straightened out by Christ. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 8. This is a time of Christ's Reformation. You've heard of Luther's Reformation or the Reformation? What about Christ's Reformation? Here it is. Verse 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this. Talking about all the old covenant, again, shadows and types. That the way into the holy place was not yet disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. According to... Uh, Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Perfect in conscience. Since they relate only to food and drink and various washings. See, all the external things. Regulations for the body imposed until when? Until a time of reformation. This is a high point in the book of Hebrews. This word reformation, diarthosis, is only found one time in the entire New Testament. Right here. The word literally means to make something straight, to rectify something, to bring the correction to something. The BDAG, very strong Greek lexicon, says a process that leads to a new order yet to be revealed. That's exactly what came in the New Covenant. A new process that leads to a new ordering of things that has yet to be revealed. That's what the Reformation of Christ brought. John MacArthur says only the New Covenant in Christ sets things right. The old symbols, the old forms, were meant to serve only until this time, the time of Reformation. 
The old covenant was never capable of setting things right between God and men. Its purpose was only to symbolize the setting of things right until the true, the effective sacrifice was made. The sacrifice that reformed man from the inside and not merely from the outside. That's why we're in such a greater covenant, brothers and sisters, because when God puts you in this covenant, something happens to you on the outside. It's not just merely, it's not just merely consist, consisting of external observances, you know, to try to bring us maybe into our modern-day vernacular. You can walk into a church, doesn't make you a Christian. You can get wet in the water, doesn't make you a Christian. You can lift your hands in worship, doesn't make you a Christian. You can go out and hand out gospel tracts, that doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is an inward work of the Spirit of the living God. And when that happens, your Christianity is axiomatic. It is self-evident. Not that you don't believe me, but just in case you doubt me, <laughs> look back up to verse 3 of this chapter. You remember the way that Paul's arguing. He says, well, in verse 2, you are our letter. You want vindication that the new covenant has taken root in your life? What better verification or commendation do you need than this? Then you yourselves are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. This is something everyone is able to see, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ. You see that? Christ is the author of the letter written in your heart. Your life now speaks of the fact that you are under the sovereign lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ and that becomes absolutely self-evident through the way that you live, through the way that you love. This is why Paul could say, brothers and sisters, after all of this, outshining glory, outlasting glory. This is why I believe the apostle could say, I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You know, I was considering this even for my own evangelism. As much as I love to use the law in evangelism, and I think it's necessary and needed and we have to do it, we need to because it shows man his sin just like the Bible says. At the end of the day, brothers and sisters, I want to leave sinners with one impression ultimately in their heart, and that is that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ died for sinners, and He bore the curse on the cross. He bore the curse on the tree, and if you don't accept His curse-reversing work, you are still under the curse. I want them to grope for the Savior. I want them to see before them, as it were, placated publicly to them, Christ crucified and all of its multiple implications for their lives. Oh, I can't get enough of Jesus. Christ crucified is the apex of our, of our message now. That is it. That is the apex. And I can't wait for next week. I can't tell you how excited I am about next week because there we will take the veil off. We will see the very glory of the Lord in the face of Christ as it were and what that means for our lives being transformed. You know, there's two things I want to leave with you by way of application. Number one, 
what the new covenant means for you is that you don't have to try to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, right? You are not justified by works, and you are not sanctified by your own works either. Paul tells the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Therefore, he says, with fear and trembling, work out your own salvation. But what a great and grand promise this is for you and I to know that even in our sanctification, when we blow it, when we sin, when we're living in a way that is in complete contradiction to our confession, that the, that the, that the answer is not, okay, now start making a big list of things that you're going to start doing right, and now you're going to start really keeping things, really doing things the right way, as if by doing those things, you have become any more righteous than the moment before that. You haven't. All of your righteousness is bound up in Christ. All of your sanctification is in Him as well. And secondly, this is to say that we have a new orientation in life. A new orientation in life. What's our new orientation? It's not the Torah. It is Christ. It is not going back to the Levitical law. It is going to Christ. He is our new mediator. He is our new covenant maker. He is our sacrifice. We no longer need a, a high priest. He is our high priest. We no longer need a king. He is our king. We no longer need any more prophets. He is our prophet. He is everything for us. We don't need, therefore, our conscience to be cleansed by all sorts of external rituals. Christ will cleanse us and vivify us, give us life, not by external rituals, my friends, but by His own blood. Only the blood of Jesus is able to perfect the worshiper. You stand justified in the sight of God because of the justifying power of the new covenant in His blood. I don't know how you fight the Christian life apart from these promises. I don't know how you do it. But praise God, we have a better covenant with better promises. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I know that there is so much more that can be said and Father, I know that in these passages there is so much by way of theology for us and there are so many other implications and there are, there, are, there are a lot of other dots that need to be connected. And so Christ, I pray that you would bless as we continue going through this chapter. Help us to understand your word. Let your word dwell richly within us. And Lord, I pray that you would use the realities of the new covenant to radically transform our lives, to show us with what access we can now approach the throne of grace. Because we need help. In this little church, there are marriages that are not right. There are father-son, father-daughter relationships that are not right. There are 
people that are at work and that are doing things that are not right, they're not working to the glory of God. Our lives, in other words, Lord, are in great need of transformation still. And I pray that our transformation would happen according to your spirit and not because we have erected some law that we must keep. But Lord, we thank you that the spirit of our God And the grace of our God teaches us to deny ungodliness. It teaches us to delight in God in our inner man. And so, Father, we know that we we will not sin because grace abounds. God forbid. Lord, but but because we have this superabundant grace, how can we not live lives according to your word? Father, please transform us from the inside. Do a renewing work in our hearts, in our lives. Lord, these covenant realities, as great as they are and as as precious as they are, having been done in the blood of Jesus, will do little for us if we don't take you at your word, if we don't take up these promises, and if we don't fight in light of such truth for our sanctification. We pray that you continue to bless us, Lord, as we meditate. We pray that you would continue to bless us as we ponder the truths of the new covenant. We bless you. We thank you. And it's in Christ Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I just wanted to leave us with Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. And I see from this passage in Jeremiah at least three things, that Christ is our King, that Christ is our Savior, and that Christ is our righteousness. Let me read this verse to us. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land, and his days In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Christ is our righteousness. He is our Savior, our protector. I pray that he would protect you this week and that he would bless you. Please stay, fellowship with us, and uh, may the Lord bless your week. God bless you all.